Good morning. Our scripture this morning is the, from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. In the spring, when kings go off to war, David went to Joab, along with his servants and all the Israelites, and they destroyed the Ammonites, attacking the city of Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his couch and was pacing back and forth on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone and inquired about the woman. The report came back. Isn't this Eliam's daughter, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers to get her. When she came to him, he had sex with her. Then she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to David. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Julie. So this is the sixth week of our journey in our series titled The Life of David. As we recall, the premise of this series is for us to understand why it is that David would be considered a man who had the same heart as God. What is it about his life, the circumstances, the events that form, that shape him, so that we might learn from them, so that we might be formed and shaped to also be people who have the heart of God as well. So over the past five weeks, we, we've looked at things like the persistence that it takes to journey in this life and faith, for David to be the unlikeliest character in this story, to be anointed by God for God's purposes, how faith can overcome giants, how selfless love can be displayed even to those who are our enemies, and how friendship can be something that moves beyond the bonds of blood, marriage, and duty, how it can be a powerful thing for each of us. This week we're going to immerse ourselves in another one of David's stories, one of those stories that is almost universally known in our world, the story of David and Bathsheba. But I want to start by saying this to you. Many of you here today are abnormal. I'm going to let that sink in for just a second. You're abnormal people. You're abnormal because you still subscribe to a thing called the Kansas City Star. Right? A thing historians call a newspaper. It's printed on paper, it has ink, it's delivered to your home, it's an information source for you. Some of you, you pick it up, you read it from cover to cover. Friends, you are abnormal. Because very few people read the paper anymore. They get their news and their information from other sources than the printed word. They get it in other forms of media. But you abnormal people who read the newspaper back on June 17th, you might have remember coming across a particular article in there that was about a car wreck. At 3 a.m. in the morning, there was a tow truck that had a car in tandem that was going northbound on Southwest Traffic Way. From behind, a gray Honda came up on the left-hand side of the tow truck in its vehicle, and it flipped the vehicle. The car careened across two lanes of traffic, and it hit a building at 37th and the traffic way. In that corner of the building was a new restaurant called Freshwater. The car hit the building so hard that it collapsed the south end of the building, 
and then the car careened back out into the middle of traffic, and there it stopped. According to the article, the 25-year-old male driver of the Honda suffered minor injuries. He was taken into custody, of course, by the police under suspicion of being under the influence of something. Now, his 19-year-old female passenger did not fare as well as he did. She was pronounced dead at the scene of the accident. The driver is being charged. If he is is found to be actually under some influence of something, he's going to be charged with a Class B felony for driving while intoxicated. He's going to be charged for causing a death with a blood alcohol level of 0.18 or higher. And, of course, they always add this one on, too, operating a motor vehicle without a valid license. Those are the things that he's going to be charged with. Now, I'm not in the law business. I don't watch or listen to the news much. I am not abnormal like you because I don't subscribe to the Kansas City Star. But still, I am all too often aware of these kinds of situations, right? You know, you hear of it. A person who is impaired under the influence gets in an accident. They walk away with minor injuries someone else winds up with significant injuries or dies in the accident. I was recently reminded that our mistakes can be costly. They can be deadly in human interaction. We can kill a relationship by our mistakes. We can kill a promising career. We can kill our financial security, our future. We can even take the life of someone else. But interestingly enough, for many of us, in these encounters in the human, we are not hardened, we are not crassed about these kinds of things. Rather, many of us are trying to figure out how to learn from our mistakes, how to atone for them, how to overcome them. I was reading websites this week about apologies. There are websites that can teach you how to write the perfect apology letter. There are ones who can teach you how to write an apology note to a friend. There's a website that even has sample letters of apology that you can tailor to your circumstances, whether they be personal or professional. But the one that I thought was interesting was a website that is for those who want to post an anonymous apology. For those of you who might need the web address because you want to post anonymous apology, it is www.anonymousapology.com. I see all of you writing that down. Now here's a sampling of some of what was posted on this anonymous apologies website. The mundane are things like, I stole your bike, I'm sorry, I ratted you out at school yesterday, I told John you took his bagel, I'm sorry I lied, and I'm sorry I can't help. Those are kind of the mundane anonymous apologies that were posted. A couple of the funny ones that I, well, I thought were funny, you might, you might not, but we'll see. One of them was, I am sorry I stopped up the toilet on your boat. Now, that's where Nick's parents need to be here, Jack and, and Pat, because, you know, that, that would be apropos to them. But. And then another one said, George and Trina, I am very sorry that I told you that I did not want Christmas gifts, and I'm sorry that I was not able to receive them when you offered them. As a result, I'm feeling very sad about this situation, so I wish that both of you would make it right. Buy me some more gifts because I'll be more than happy to receive them. 
A couple of the more serious ones were these. One just simply said, Dad, I am sorry that you are gone. Another said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my destructive ways. I am sorry for the headache I have caused my family. Please, please forgive me. I'm confident that that these sites, these kinds of activities can be cathartic for people, but I also hope that it might empower people to be bold enough to move beyond the anonymous and to face up to their mistakes with the people that they actually need to seek forgiveness from because I believe that forgiveness is a contact sport. Right? It takes interaction between two humans, the offended and the offender for forgiveness to have the true power it is meant to have. And that's part of the story of David. When it comes to the life of David, as I said early on, I think the two stories that we know the most from the life of David are, of course, David and Goliath, his great moment of courage, and David and Bathsheba, his great moment of cowardice. Most of us know the first part of the story. We're, we're real familiar with the very first part of the story. We've heard it preached on many times. Most of us preachers actually stop at the very first part of the story, right? Spring comes, wars break out, kings and their troops go out into the fields to do battle. But one particular spring, David decides to stay home where he's not supposed to be. One evening he is on the roof of the palace. He's pacing back and forth. He's looking out over the city and on the rooftop of one of the homes he sees a beautiful woman bathing. David wants her. David uses his power. He gets her. He has her. And there's a consequence. A child is conceived. Now make no mistake, dear friends, the person that was in the wrong place in this moment was not Bathsheba. It was David. David was where he was not supposed to be. The story, the storyline of this is well worn into our memories, but I would ask the question that Paul Harvey would ask you, how about the rest of the story? Do we remember it? Do we know it well? We know that Bathsheba sends word to David to inform him that she is with child, so David formulates a plot on how to get around this. He sends word to the battlefield, plan A, get Uriah home. So he sends word to the battlefield, send Uriah the Hittite home, have him bring word of how the war is going, right? And his real purpose is is to hopefully send send Uriah home to his own house so that he might do what a husband on leave would do, right? But Uriah doesn't play party to David's plan. Rather, Uriah sleeps at the palace gates. He's thinking, how can I enjoy the benefits of being home while all my comrades are at war? He sleeps at the palace gates. David hears about this, and he asks Uriah, why didn't you go home? And Uriah tells him why it is that he doesn't go home. So David initiates plan B. I'm going to have Uriah for dinner. So he has him over for dinner. He's going to serve him a meal. He's going to send him off in some drinks, and hopefully tipsy Uriah will tiptoe home and have fun with his wife while he's here. But Uriah, again, doesn't participate in plan B. Uriah sleeps again at the palace gates. So David moves on to plan C. He sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a note in hand for the commander. And the note simply says this, that at the next battle, place Uriah at the 
very front of the battle lines. And when it gets hot and heated in the battle, pull the troops back just far enough that Uriah is certain to be killed. And that's what transpires. Bathsheba is sent word that her husband Uriah has died on the battlefield. She mourns as is customary. And at the end of the mourning period... David takes her to be his wife, and they have a son. And chapter 11 of 2 Samuel ends with this verse. It simply says, What David had done was evil in the Lord's eyes. Now, a question came to mind for me that I wanted to ask you this morning as well. What in the world in this story indicates that David has the heart of God? What out of this story sounds anything like the heart of God? The rest of the story picks up in chapter 12. And I want to read this to you real quick. Listen to these words. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. And when Nathan arrived, arrived, he said to David, There were two men in the same city, one rich and one poor. The rich man had a lot of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing just one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised the lamb, and it grew up with him and his children. He would feed the lamb from his own food. It would drink from his cup. It even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to visit the rich man, but the rich man wasn't willing to take anything from his own flock or herd to prepare a meal for the guest who had arrived. Instead, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and he prepared it for the visitor. David got very angry at the man and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the one who did this is demonic. He must restore the ewe lamb seven times over because he did this and because he had no compassion. Nathan looked at David and said, You are that man. This is what the Lord God of Israel said. I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from Saul's power. I gave you mastery over his house. I gave you wives into your home. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If that was too little, I would have given you even more. Why have you despised the Lord's word by doing what is evil in God's eyes? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your own. You have used the Ammonites to kill him. And because of that, because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite as your own, the sword will never leave your house. This is what the Lord says. I am making trouble come against you from inside your own family. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives away. They will be given to your friend. He will have intimacy with them in broad daylight. You did what you did secretly, but I will do what I am going to do before all of Israel in the light of day. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, The Lord has removed your sin. You will not die. However, because you have utterly disrespected the Lord by doing this, the son born to you will definitely die. Then Nathan went home. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David. He became very sick. And on the seventh day, 
the child died. What about this story shares in any way, says in any way, that David had the heart of God? It sounds like nothing. It sounds like nothing in this story shares God's heart, shows that David has God's heart. Because in this moment, David does not display righteousness. He is not a paragon of virtue or leadership. He doesn't even faithfully honor someone else's covenant. David finds himself in the right place at the wrong time. He uses his power, his position for evil. He takes what is not his. He tries to cover up his mistake in all that he does. One commentator simply said, in this moment, David's a thief. Steals another man's wife, steals his life, steals the fullness of life for a small, innocent child. David's sin hurt. David's sin was dangerous. David's sin not only affected him, it led to death, especially for others. Nothing in this story sounds like it reflects the heart of God, except verse 13, where David confesses, I have sinned, and the Lord says, your sins are forgiven. Mercy and grace is given. Where sin has led to death, forgiveness is leading to life. That is the heart of God, dear friends. Faithful and just, forgiving our sins while not forgoing the natural consequences of it. Last Sunday, Virginia Lambright was kind enough to share with me a couple pages from a Jewish commentary. And the article that she shared with me was titled, David, We Hardly Knew Ye. A snippet of the article talks about this and shares about David. And it simply says this. He said, the article writer said, David was not chosen by God in, or despite his moral failings, but rather David's failings are the lenses that reveal to us David's greatness, David's heart for God. It is in the wake of David's sins that we see emerging the paradigmatic penitent. A person who is on a quest for atonement that is unlike any other character in the Bible, maybe even in human history. Because David lives it out. David writes about these things. David knew he was wrong. His journey would then forever be to search out the forgiveness of God and the forgiveness of others, to know the power in his own life and the effect that forgiveness can have on others. David becomes a trailblazer for each one of us to find and experience forgiveness, to be able to learn what it means to forgive. I know many of us struggle with that feeling of being forgiven, of knowing what it means to forgive. If you don't hear anything else this morning, dear friends, this is what I want you to hear today. I want you to know that God loves you and there is nothing you can do to escape that fact. God loves every single one of us. And God invites us to live in the power of divine forgiveness. For only God can forgive our past, our present, our future. Only God can release us from the chains of guilt and shame. Only God can put us on the path of righteousness and eternal life. If we would simply confess, let go, and hold on to the lifeline of God's love. Because I think then we truly become people who learn and understand what it is to be forgiven so that we might practice in our lives forgiveness. And frankly, friends, in this world, I think that's something that's missing. 